years ago, the signals that we could get into a situation where there could be an emergency that required everyone to work from home, it was pretty clear that there were a lot of number of things that could have caused that. It happened to be a pandemic, but there were a lot of things that, that could cause that. The technologies to be able to do that were available. So the we didn't have a pandemic plan, to me, sounds more like an excuse of poor leadership. Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. What gets you up in the morning? What drives your decisions? What do you stand for? No idea, not even sure where to start? I use my values to guide my life and career. It's the basis of how I've built boundaries for myself and stuck to them. Are you ready to dig into what matters to you? Go to thecatchgroup.com to download your free values worksheet. That's thecatchgroup.com to download your free values worksheet to get to your core values and take action on what matters most. Welcome to this week's episode of the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. I had the pleasure to talk to Joe Santana. Joe is the chairman of the CDO Power Circle and the creator and host of the ERG Power Talk podcast. The CDO Power Circle is an association of diversity, equity, and inclusion leaders within highly respected companies that generate nearly three quarters of a trillion US dollars and employ almost 1 million people. The CDO Power Circle helps these member organizations develop visionary diversity leaders at all levels within their companies. Joe's also a futurist and a published author. His discussions aren't just about old best practices. His discussions are about future insights that take leaders to a whole new level of thinking and learning. And I will tell you, our conversation will take you to that next level of new learning. Joe and I talked about why it's important to think more like a futurist and how to spot signals and new trends. We also talked about how to become a CEO's trusted advisor to influence, even if you don't report directly to the CEO. Joe's answers are wrapped in dynamic stories, stats, and facts that draw on his years of research and interviews contained in his new book, The New DEI and ERG Frontier. I can't wait for you to learn from him. Let's get started. Well, I want to welcome you to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast, Joe. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me, Laura. Well, I would love if you could tell us a little bit more about your story to give our listeners a little bit more information about you. Where did you come from? Tell me more. Yeah. So initially, believe it or not, I started in the finance space. And then after that, uh, I moved many years ago, I moved into the IT outsourcing uh, space. And in that space, I ran across this interesting problem, which was that in the outsourcing world, in order to be able to uh, begin processing an account and actually getting revenue from it, you have to have a management team and you have to put a management team in place. You have to put a management team in place that knows your processes so that when you take over that account's structure, you start using your processes because that's how you end up saving money, producing better services, and of course, making a profit out of it while saving them money at the same time. And so the key to success here is after you close an account, you gotta have a new person to put in. And one of the things that I found in that role that sort of moved me in the direction that I went in ultimately was that 
we were always short of new leaders for these accounts. And primarily we became short of leaders as the number of women that were joining the organization was increasing versus the number of men that we had. And the other interesting thing was that I noticed that only men at the time were actually project leaders. They were the only account leaders. There were no women in that role. So that got me looking into, well, what's going on here? Because I need project executives. Otherwise, my client who's waiting for me to start delivering might get a little sour on me and go to their number two candidate. Or at best, I'm going to end up losing revenue that I could realize this year until I'm able to get that account properly managed and operationalized. So I started looking into what was going on. I made an interesting discovery. And that discovery was that 90% of the men that came into the organization came in as technicians, the guys with the screwdrivers that fix the computers, or they came in as programmers. Whereas most of the women that were coming into the organization were coming in either in logistics, people who ordered the parts or made sure that things got to where they needed to get to, or they were in the help desk, which is where they took care of people who called in who had problems. And in order for someone to become a leader, they had to know both sides. They had to know the whole equation of how our process worked. And there was a really rock solid training program that taught people that were technical, of which 90% were men, the logistics side of the business and the administrative side. There was no corresponding program that taught someone who came up through the logistic and administrative side what some of the highlights were of the technical side. So the men had a really long ladder because they were able to get that full picture. The women had a short ladder because they were mostly coming through the side that did not have a ready-made path to that next level of leadership. And so we put that path in place and we ended up then bringing more women into roles of leadership. In fact, one of those women took my place when I left that role. And so she became the person that was in charge of the entire New York, New Jersey and Connecticut area, which used to be my territory. But for me, that was a really solid example and awakening as to this whole imbalance that existed out there. And suddenly these words, diversity, inclusion, and equity, which wasn't used as much back then, began to become more solid for me in terms of, oh, this is what we're talking about. This is, we've probably been experiencing this in different ways, but you know, now I have sort of a picture in my mind that there are systems that are set up to support one group of people that are not equally set up to support another group of people. And that tends to result in disparities and, and those can be corrected. And I got involved in doing a lot of that work. That work turned out to be a real boon to the company for that particular territory. So when the company decided that they were going to have a full-blown DEI initiative across the entire country, they decided rather than to go the usual route, which is to pick someone who's from recruiting or HR to head it up. They were going to go with somebody who was on the business side. That turned out to be me. I happily accepted it. And then I served as a diversity officer for the company for a number of years and built most of the architecture of the systems that they still have in place and have been building on top of. But uh, that's been my journey into the space. And then subsequently, after leaving corporate, I decided to continue in that space helping people who are now sitting in that chair. So what I do now is I focus on helping develop leaders within the DEI space from the very top, which would be your chief diversity officer, all the way through your uh, resource group leaders, your executive sponsors, and everybody else who's involved in what I consider to be this really great work. I love that story. And um, it came out of business necessity but you saw that it was a broader impact, not just for the business, but for the development of others to, to reach equity. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that in organizations, there are a lot of processes and practices that are in place that were developed for a particular group of people in a particular time period. So I, I recently interviewed someone for a podcast that I have who brought up an interesting point also. Uh, she brought up the fact that to this day in many organizations, 
if you are a salesperson and you take, let's say, for example, a client out for drinks, you can go back and fill out a reimbursement report and get your money back for the drinks and you can get your money back for any transportation, et cetera, et cetera. If you happen to be a woman who's got a toddler, you cannot put on that expense report your babysitting costs. And yet those costs are just as important to your ability to forge that relationship with that client as that fellow's costs were to take that Uber to get to this particular meeting and so forth. And actually, even more broadly in today's context, uh, there may be men who have a toddler that they need to take care of who probably will have the same cost. So it's not just a woman that would have that, a man might have that. But a lot of these rules about who gets reimbursed and what we reimburse were created when? In the 1950s. And what was the 1950s? It was a period when men worked and women would basically take care of everything else that involved, you know, raising a healthy family. And so the idea was, well, these are the needs that workers have, but that's not true anymore. The needs that workers have have evolved and continue to evolve as the world as the world becomes more diverse. And not only do you have now more women in positions of leadership, but you also have people of various backgrounds and so forth. A lot of the rules that were created and a lot of the processes that were created were not created for them. They were created for this for this male with the stay at home wife of the 1950s. It's so interesting how like technology advances so fast. But workplace culture does not. Just like you said, those same systems that were in place like 70 years ago are still in place. And I think we're still fighting them. I feel like the pandemic has fast forwarded that a lot with Zoom and work from home. But I, in the work that I do with clients, I still, there's still a battle. There's still this tension, right? Like our culture has to live in person. And, and I think we've proven that wrong. So as we think about, you know, just even the past couple of years, how has kind of technology impacted some of the work that you've been doing and with your clients? Yeah, I mean, I think that one, I'm going to go back to something you just said before, because I, 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 I think it's a really important point, which is that organizations are still moving along this, I consider it sort of an a, a incremental path where they make little improvements to things and they'll say, well, now we're going to include, let's say, for example, in the past, they didn't include certain benefits and now they're going to include pet care because uh, whatever reason, right? Uh, or we're going to include this other benefit here. We're going to include this other thing here. Or right now the rage is talking about hybrid work. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, now we're going to we're going to look for ways to better engage people in hybrid work. And I think that the challenges that I've seen organizations face as a result of this incremental path that they're on, which is sort of the conservative, we're going to we're going to take our best practice and improve it a little bit to address this new thing. This is becoming more and more of a liability as we move into the future, because the changes that are happening are not incremental, they're exponential. And as a result, the things that you just cannot fix the problems and or the uh, or take advantage of the opportunities that show up just by making little tweaks to the things that we did in the past. So I'll give you a quick example. Take, for example, I think a lot of organizations today talk a lot about hybrid work. You see this in all the different media that's out there. Well, based on the research I've done and some of the work that I've done when I was putting my book together, I think that's kind of like a day late and a dollar short. And the reason why is because we're not moving so much toward a hybrid workplace as much as we are a multidimensional workplace. And what I mean by that is, The old dimension of work was same place, same time. And that's primarily a lot of HR efforts, a lot of DEI efforts, ERGs and so forth, focused on who's at the work site, who's on campus. And maybe 6% prior to the pandemic were working remotely. They got ignored. Uh, Bluntly, they got ignored, right? Now what's happened is as a result of the pandemic, you had suddenly 35% of the workforce pushed into this 
uh, remote workspace. So they're no longer in the same place at the same time. They're in a different place at the same time. And they're working with tools like Zoom or Teams and, and so forth and these other platforms. But there are some other dimensions also that aren't being talked about a lot, but are equally important. The other dimension is this dimension of, of a different place, of a same place at a different time. So that's what we might call shift work. And in the past, shift works also, shift workers also got ignored to some degree. It's like you're not here during the day. That's when we hold the ERG meeting or whatever. You know, it's unfortunate you're on nights. And that was a small percentage of people. That percentage is growing because organizations today, as a result of the pandemic, can't have all those people in the building at the same time. So more people are being asked to come in at different times, even though they're coming to the same place. So that other dimension of you're in the same place, but not at the same time, that's growing. And then the third dimension that's growing is different time and different place. These are people who, let's say, for example, uh, through technology and other other enabling tools are able to work for the organization, but they're in a totally different time zone. And so they're going to contribute to the project, let's say in a Google doc, or if you have uh, an internal in-house system that you use some repository, they're gonna put their information in there. The next morning you and I wake up and we do a little work on the same, on the same project. And together we're building a program or building whatever it is that we're building, but we're never in the same place. And we certainly aren't there at the same time. And there are organizations that want to really push that even further. There's a company called Loom, which is like Zoom, but with an L, that's actually banking on more and more of that type of different place, different time work happening. And they've gotten some hefty money from venture capitalists. They have over 1 million subscribers already. So clearly the money believes that this is gonna be something that's gonna grow. And I think that while, while organizations are incrementally preparing for, oh, we have to add this other thing, which is people who aren't in the office. So we have hybrid work. What they're missing the boat on is that we're speeding toward a multidimensional workforce. So how are you going to attract, retain, develop, maintain inclusion, maintain diversity, create equity with people who are in the same place, but not at the same time, never in the same place or at the same time. And then to add to that, we have Mark Zuckerberg's announcement of the metaverse, which you know, I tend to think of as, you know, being a little bit of a sci-fi fan as a wormhole that ties together the other four dimensions, okay. because you can literally go in there with a pair of goggles and gloves and interact as if you were in the same place. Uh, you could leave work behind that somebody else can come and pick up from that place later on. So it kind of links the different pieces together. And right now, what's the conversation? Hybrid work, dollar short, daily. <laughs> Yeah, I love that visual of of the fourth dimension because you are it's asynchronous work, it's still building connection, it's still and that's what people want. And there are companies that are doing it, but there are yes. more companies that are not. That is correct. That is correct. And this exponential growth is going to continue to speed up. The the slowest day that we ever experienced happened yesterday. The future is not going to slow down for us. A lot of organizations that are waiting for things to go back to normal are thinking of normal as being what they experienced in the past. That is not normal. What's normal is what's happening now and what's going to be happening in the future. And one of the, one of the analogies that I use for what leaders need to do in organizations, DEI leaders, ERG leaders, but it also goes for business leaders is you have to set up your organization and yourself with sort of the metaphorical qualities of a major league baseball hitter. So a major league baseball hitter stands at home plate with a bat and the pitcher is over at a mound uh, 60 and a half feet away. And if that pitcher throws a fastball, that ball is moving at 350 milliseconds. So it's, it's, it's going to close the distance between that 60 and a half feet and where that batter is in, in, in just that short period of time. Now, let's look at the human mechanics of, of you know, what that 
hitter is, is facing. It takes that baseball hitter, it takes him about 200 or some odd milliseconds just to realize the ball left the pitcher's hand and it's coming toward me. That's how long it takes to do that. It takes another several milliseconds for the brain to communicate to the body, swing or don't swing. So they're left with like 25 to 50 milliseconds to make a decision, which is literally physically impossible because if you try to think of that, of what we're talking about in terms of how fast that ball closes that distance, that's the speed at which we blink, right? So at the speed at which we blink is left the glove and the ball is already here. So how do they do it? And the way that they do it is that major league hitters who are really good at this, who hit, you know, 30% of the time to hit the ball, slam it out of the park. They have better than average vision. They have, they have like 29, 20 slash 13. So these people have great visual acuity and they also have what's called very good uh, stereoscopic visual acuity. So, you know, if you've ever held an object away from your face and you close one eye and then the other, it looks like it goes closer and further. Well, the distance between those two is the difference between your, uh, your acuity and each eye. These people have acuity that's so good that the object looks almost at the same distance, okay. regardless of what eye they use. So they have the ability to see details in that mound that's 60 and a half feet away from them in terms of how that uh, baseball pitcher is setting up and what kind of pitch. And is that going to be a fastball that they're winding up for? The other thing that they have is they have more than the sort of Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours of experience. They've played balls, probably minor league, and before that when they were kids and so forth. So they've got enough experience and can communicate quickly enough uh, in, in, inside their own brain network what kind of pitch is coming at them by that experience and how the pitcher is, is setting up. And that's what gives them that little teeny weeny millisecond advantage that they need to be able to make that decision to either swing if, if it's within the frame that they need it to be or not swing so that they don't get a strike. Uh, organizations need to start developing some of the, the metaphorical equivalents uh, of those qualities. One is need, the need to be able to look out and to see signals that are happening and to determine what the secondary and tertiary effects of those signals are going to be and how they need to prepare their organizations to be able to handle those. And they also need to have communication set up amongst their various groups, not only their senior leadership, but all the people they have in the organization so that they can efficiently decide very quickly what is this that's you know what is this that's coming at us how do we respond to it in the most effective way the old way of saying well let's see what it is let's take our time let's call my friend and ask them what their best practice is let's pilot it let's pilot it <laughs> let's try it out let's not move too quickly that's the road to failure and so you're going to have a lot of organizations that are going to learn this a little bit uh, too late. A great example of an organization, whether we think highly of them or not, in terms of doing something like that right now, I think is Amazon. Uh, Amazon is one of the only companies that did not face supply chain issues during the holidays and supplying all their stores. Why? Because they kind of saw how all these moving parts were moving and they decided to go out and make sure they had their own boats secured. They had a container factory set up so that they could make their own containers and they started shipping to themselves things that they felt people would buy based on the historical records they have of what we've purchased before. Everyone else waited until they saw, oh, the ships are all stuck in the harbors in California. That means the containers aren't going back. So there's a container shortage in Asia, which is where most of these products come from. And oh, and we don't have boats going back there. So we have no way of transporting our stuff here. Oh, we have a, we have a supply chain problem. Now, you know, a lot of organizations will turn around and say, well, that wasn't foreseeable. And you're absolutely right. But the job of a good leader is to look at the things that are going on and to be able to determine 
What are the potential outcomes and how do I prepare for these? Not to turn around and say later on, oh, this was a black swan and we didn't have a plan. Of course not. You didn't have a plan. You need to start looking ahead and thinking like a futurist. What do these signals mean? What are the potential things that can happen? What are the potential opportunities that can come from them? What are the potential obstacles? How can I optimize our situation to avoid those obstacles and pounce on those opportunities? And that's true of DEI leaders, ERG leaders, business leaders. And what kinds of things and what kinds of signals should they be attuned to as DEI leaders, as employer resource group or affinity leaders, as senior leaders who are the sponsors of these things? What kinds of things? If you're not used to looking for signals, you might be looking for the wrong signals. So what kinds of things from that perspective um, might they be looking for? Yeah, I mean, there are signals all around us right now. In, in many cases, like for example, uh, years ago, the signals that we could get into a situation where there could be an emergency that required everyone to work from home, it was pretty clear that there were a lot of number of things that could have caused that. It happened to be a pandemic, but there were a lot of things that, that could cause that. The technologies to be able to do that were available. So the we didn't have a pandemic plan, to me, sounds more like an excuse of poor leadership. And I know I've heard that, but I, I just... I think that the job of leaders is to anticipate things like that. Now, in terms of right now, what are some of the future signals that DEI leaders and ERG leaders and others need to pay attention to? One of them is the growing use of AI in the, uh, in the HR space. So a lot of DEI leaders today are spending upward of $40 billion, I think, collectively in things like unconscious bias training. What is the purpose of unconscious bias training? The purpose of unconscious bias training is to ensure that people like recruiters and hiring managers are aware of these mechanisms so that they can make more, they can make more intentional, positive decisions that benefit the organization in terms of leveraging all the talent that's out there that's becoming increasingly diverse. But here's the, here's the thing. As you look at more and more organizations today, are using, uh, are, are using basically automated systems to ferret through all the resumes. In fact, there's one stat out there that says that only about 25% of the resumes that are submitted actually get to a human recruiter. So that means 75% of all the resumes get chopped off by a system who says, nope, this is not the right person for this particular job. Now there are systems that are being developed that actually have the ability to conduct the interview. And basically the way they would conduct the interview is by using text-to-speech, which is used by a lot of tools like Alexa and other, uh, other tools that we use today when we call on the phone and we get that, that annoying little <laughs> robot that tells us that they're happy that we're being patient with them when we're actually not being patient. <laughs> but, but you... you, you uh, they use that and a series of questions, right? And now that bot can actually interview the person. The person can be videotaped while they're being interviewed. And then that videotape can be put through another program that then analyzes everything from eye movement to coloration of skin in terms of are you blushing? Are you flushed? Do you look comfortable? Uh, voice, not only voice, the usage of words, but also tension in your voice or the lack of tension in your voice. It can use all of that to make determinations about you. And so let's say that 25% of the people that are getting through the initial resume scanning robot, now only 25% of them get through the chat bot interview robot. That means that about 6.5 25% of all the people that apply for a job somewhere in that neighborhood are the ones that actually get to a human being. And that human being who has all this, you know, unconscious bias training. But the bulk of the people who were candidates for this got eliminated by the system. And we know from all the different stories and research that's out there, 
These systems are not bias-free. There is bias as the people who create them. There is bias as the historical data that's used to train them. There is bias as the people who use them. And so, in fact, I, it was interesting. I did a study where I actually asked HR people if they thought that diversity, inclusion, and equity would be improved by the use of artificial intelligence, whether it would be hampered by the use of artificial intelligence, or if it depended on how it was managed. I got a 63% response that said that they thought it would be improved. And these were senior people within the practice, right? So clearly, you know, the gods are biased and the people who are managing the gates don't know it, right? And so the, the problem there is that then you end up with that 6.25 or 6. You know, 7% that got through the recruiting and so forth, which, you know, and these machines have no unconscious bias training. So what's that going to do to that effort? It's going to take it backwards unless people that are involved in DEI start getting involved in these systems, involved in the training of the system, involved in interrogating, well, why does it make that particular choice? And that has to be a continuous process because there is no one and done with any of this. Uh, Amazon tried to fix a system that they had that they used for recruiting that showed a bias against women. And the reason why? Because the historical data they used to train it showed that men succeeded in Amazon more than women did. The system didn't take that as being sort of like this little side thing. It took it as being a very important feature that you have to look for, right? So maleness was important. They tried everything to blind the system to this, not putting in the gender of the person in the resume, not putting in, you know, certain... The system would find ways to identify the women. It was either maybe some little thing like it says captain of the female tennis club. Boom, it went to the dead pile, right? So these systems, unless they're managed appropriately, can introduce, you know, early 1900s bias back. In the meantime, what are we doing? We're spending $40 billion in training the recruiters who have less and less to do with who the final slate is and training the, the, the hiring managers who are even further downstream while upstream machines are being put into place. To me, that's an important signal to start paying attention to. Uh, and there are, of course, others, but that's, I think that's one of the things that we need to start paying attention to. Doesn't mean stop doing what you're doing, but it means stop, start paying attention to what's going on upstream and start focusing on that as well uh, so that you can head that off before it becomes a disaster. Oh my goodness. I love, um, I love your stories and I love the concrete examples. I mean, uh, this idea that technology is more objective is a fallacy, right? Yeah. So, um, so that, that is a perfect example of how, you know, DEI leaders, executives, be asking these questions. How is this developed? Because it's interesting. So the, the bigger companies, the companies that are investing in all this technology, especially in recruiting, might be more biased than a small company that has zero technology in recruiting. That is correct. That is correct. And then you've got all these other layers. Like, for example, there are all these other signals. Like, I'll give you an example of another one. In 2019, in Japan, a company called Ori Labs started this experiment with a uh, cafe. They literally invited people to come to a cafe and to have tea, coffee, uh, little bites to eat, and chat with their servers. And, you know, that was great, except none of the servers were physically there. What they had was they had these avatar robots, which are more like cobots. They're not run by AI but they're run by pilots who in many cases were miles away from where the cafe was located. They were bedridden. Some of them had uh, various types of, of uh, physical uh, challenges and disabilities that made it impossible for them to leave their, their uh, beds and their rooms. And yet from that distance, they were able to operate as pilots, these robots. One robot was attached to the table the other robots were mobile. The robot that was mobile would bring a person to their table. The robot that was fixed would then take their order. 
one of the mobile robots would then go pick up the order, all run by these pilots, like drones, like drones. Mm -hmm. And they would bring the order back to the person. And then the person that was on the other side of that could see the person in the cafe and could chat with them. Mm -hmm. And they could have like this regular, comfortable conversation. It was done primarily by using a piece of software that sat on the machine used by the pilot and Wi-Fi and Wi-Fi connections inside the robot that allowed the robot to be able to be controlled through this wireless network. Okay. It took exactly less than a year. I think the experiment was in June. And by the following year in 2020, or the experiment was in September of 2019. And by June of 2020, they actually had in Tokyo a working cafe. So think about the speed that that went from lab to practice. It's almost like, think about our vaccine. It took three decades to develop the flu vaccine. The, the original flu appeared in 1919. The vaccine came around in the 40s, right? COVID-19, in just 300 days, it went from lab to jab. So this was very similar. It went from lab, right, where they had these robots and they were testing them, to now they've got this cafe in Tokyo and they're opening more of them around the world. Okay, that, you can look at that and say like, wow, that's wonderful. So you have servers now that can serve even though they're bedridden. But actually it can mean a lot more. It means A, that a server doesn't even have to be in the same country as the cafe where they're serving because Wi-Fi can connect you to anywhere. So now you've got international reach for people who basically had jobs that were considered the kind of jobs where you have to be in the same place at the same time. The other thing is that why limit it to cafe servers? What about warehouse workers? What about truck drivers? What about, and you can keep on going through the list of different things. And so the question then becomes, how are we set up as an organization? And how are we set up if we're a DEI leader or an ERG leader and to be able to actually spread our tent and our umbrella around people who are now going to be working at jobs that traditionally were considered to be jobs where you have to be there who can now do it from any country in the world and could do God knows how many different types of jobs that today are considered to be off limits to anyone who isn't physically present in the same place. And it also takes the out of the equation, if you keep thinking about this a bit, it takes out of the equation the whole idea of, well, to be a warehouse worker, you got to be this big burly guy that can lift these boxes. Well, the robot's lifting the boxes. All you're doing is moving joysticks around. So now, that's no longer a factor either. What does that mean in terms of opportunities for businesses as well as challenges? What does that mean for DEI, especially in areas of providing more opportunities for a broader workforce, people who currently are considered not able to work in certain jobs because they're disabled? I mean, it opens up a whole new set of opportunities. And one more thing, Laura, that I'll add in there is, and this is not a technical, this is not a technical uh, signal, but it is a signal nevertheless, is the fact that right now, 40% of the workforce in companies around the world, and especially here in the United States specifically, 40% of the workforce are not employees. They're contingent workers. They are 1099, as they're called, or contract workers, or they are temps. And the number of people that are entering into those types of roles is growing much faster than the number of employees in an organization. So there again comes another question if you look at this signal. How are organizations whose DEI and HR practices are set up around the model of the employee is the nucleus or maybe even the entire company? How are those organizations going to attract? engage, leverage, provide inclusion, provide equity, provide the right balance of diversity in a workforce where half or more than half of the people that are part of your value chain to your clients are not employees. They are these contingent workers. And they could be working from anywhere in the world. They could be nomads mm -hmm. that just travel from one place to the other, or they could be living in a far off city and working on what now is called a, uh, a digital visa that allows you to live in one country and work in another country. And so 
how ready are organizations for that? And as they're getting ready for that, the pitcher, you know, in our baseball analogy, is winding up for the next throw. So it cannot be incremental change anymore. Uh, leaders, DEI leaders, ERG leaders, and business leaders have to start looking higher up and looking further out at these signals and determining what's coming at them so that they can adequately then uh, pilot their efforts in the right direction. I love those examples of signals and this idea that it has to be exponential. So if you're at a company as a head of DEI or in an HR position or a leader of an ERG or an executive that's really trying to kind of leapfrog to, to exponential instead of incremental, how can we influence the people that are going to make these decisions, the people with the purse strings, so CEO, executives, um, and how do you do that in the organization where sometimes, you know, head of DEI doesn't have line of sight um, directly to CEO? I think more often they are now. I'd love to get your perspective on that. How do you influence? And then um, where, where are you even seeing kind of head of DEI sitting in organizations these days? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. I mean, the head of DEI tends to sit in HR for one reason and one reason only, and it goes right back to what we were talking about in the beginning. In the very early days when this role was first formed, which was formed after uh, a lot of turbulence that happened in the 60s and the various groups, and when the role was first formed, its focus was on increasing the recruiting of people who are underrepresented. That was the primary focus. And so it sat in HR because it was considered to be sort of like an HR support function. Over the years, a lot of people who are in the DEI space have been called upon and enlisted into various other parts of the organization. So you have DEI leaders that are involved with supply chain. You've got DEI leaders that are involved in interfacing with the organization's clients or patients if they're in a hospital. You have DEI leaders that are involved in all of these different things. But for the most part, because traditionally it sat in the HR space, in the bulk of them are still reporting on a hard line to HR and dotted lines to other people in the organization. DEI is and has been for a while now actually a senior management or a management practice that really transcends HR. HR, the focus of HR is the people side of the equation, which is how do we engage and bring in the best people, et cetera, et cetera. And that's still important and that's still part of, of, of the formula. But the DEI role is also, how do we expand the total available market of this company by better understanding all the people that can buy our products? Mm -hmm. how, do we, how do we better serve the needs of people whose taste might be slightly different and with a slight variation, we can make our car or our food or whatever it is that we sell more appealing to, to that particular group. DEI is also about how do we increase the speed and lower the cost of our supplies so that we're able to make a better product cheaper, faster, and better than anyone else. And DEI, again, can play a role in that by finding various types of diverse suppliers who often partner to do the kind of things that larger suppliers won't do for organizations. So DEI can actually help an organization to expand its market, cut its costs in its suppliers, and create a very highly engaged group, uh, workforce group. And the way it does that is by assisting these various other parts. So it can partner with HR on one end, it can partner with supply chain on the other, and it can partner with sales and, and some of the other areas. So again, it's one of those roles that really should sit higher up in the organization, connect to the CEO and even connect the board members. But the reality of it is that today it doesn't, and it doesn't for the same reason as other things are the way they are, because traditionally this is where it's sat and organizations tend to change very slowly. So what I tell DEI leaders is this, it's wonderful if you can work your way up to that C-suite and report to your CEO. But in the immediate, the one thing that you should focus on the most is becoming a trusted advisor. Mm -hmm. 
And you don't necessarily need a title to be, you don't need to have a title to be a trusted advisor. You don't need to have a title or, or any of those to, 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 uh, to achieve that. What you do need to have is two things. Number one, you need to have the trust of that executive that your actions are in the best interest of the organization and of the things that they're targeting or their goals. And the other is that you have the capability to come through, that you have the ability. So it's both, I trust you and I believe you can do this. And the way that you build that in an organization, the way that you build that is by demonstrating your competence in that area. And to me, DEI leaders today and ERG leaders have a wonderful opportunity to gain that trusted advisor status, regardless of where they sit in the hierarchy of the organization, by looking at these signals and beginning to present ideas about, hey, here's where we are, here's where we're going. And maybe because the organization might move more incrementally, you might take, you know, I remember a couple of years ago, I did this, you might take that long-term plan and make it into bite sizes. So when I first went into my role, my first DEI role, having come out of the business, I tended to think in three and five year frames. So I, I started thinking in terms of what will this organization look like if I'm successful in five years? What will, what will change and what do I envision that being? Now, in order for that to happen, what do I need to be doing in three years? And in order to be able to do that in three years, what do I need to be doing right now? And that's essentially what I presented to my senior leadership. I presented, these are some of the things that we need to do in order to move ahead. And I fed it to them in bite sizes, as opposed to saying, here's the whole, you know, here's the whole enchilada, swallow it whole. I cut it down and I fed it incrementally. So I think that really savvy DEI leaders and savvy ERG leaders can leverage this moment and their experience and looking at what's going on in the DEI world with some of the things that are going on around us to begin to help the organization to steer in that direction. And depending on the organization's appetite for, you know, for being farsighted or maybe a little more nearsighted, presented either in big bite sizes or presented in smaller bite sizes. Uh, and then I think that like in most things, once you win that trust, and you, and you gain that sense of you're the person that can come through and get things done, then that seat at the table comes. But having the seat at the table, there are a lot of people that have a seat at the table that I would say are not trusted advisors. They've gotten there through various you know, organizational changes that have happened, and sometimes they'll sit at the table. But I used to have a saying when, uh, when I was working in corporate that there are big C's and little C's, and just because you have a C title doesn't mean that you actually have all the clout that the big C's have in the organization. So there are different levels, even within the C-suite. You want to make sure you build that credibility and trust. Uh, and I think today, if you're the one that can foresee those signals and, and, and interpret them and provide solutions, you're going to gain a lot of traction in your organization. Thank you so much, Joe. I have learned so much from you and I, I'm just, I'm so excited to continue to dig in to some of your content, your podcast and your book. Can you tell me more about how to connect with you and tell me a bit more about your book? Yeah, I mean, the easiest way to connect with my email is joe at joesantana.com. Uh, there is a website out there called the CDO Power Circle that talks about all the different things that I do with Chief diversity officers. And then of course I have the podcast, which is ERG Power Talk. In terms of the book, the book actually is available now for, uh, for pre-purchase, but it won't come out in Kindle format until April 11th. And then around that time, also the, uh, the print copy will come out and there's also going to be an audio version that's going to come out. And some of the stories I shared with you come out of the book. They're stories that I included in the book that talk about the fact that, uh, it, you know, we start with, in the book, we start talking about how these different practices came into existence, how ERGs became what they became today. What were some of the forces that shaped them and that caused them to pivot into their current form from being affinity groups to then becoming these employee resource and business resource groups. And then from there, it takes off into 
what are we becoming now? If we look at all these different signals, what is it that we need to become? And I share a lot of different signals in the book of technologies and other practices and customs and behaviors uh, that are changing. And then I offer 10 tips for CDOs to get their organizations ready so that they can take advantage of these uh, of these changes and pounce on the opportunities, avoid the obstacles, and 10 tips for the uh, for the ERG. So that's that's what the book uh, does. One more thing that I have that you could find at my ERG Power Talk podcast website is if you go to ergpowertalk.com, in the very first page, there's also a link there. Uh, and you can click on that link and it'll take you to a free assessment. And it's your future readiness assessment. And it's for ERGs to determine how ready they are for all these changes that are coming in 2022, as we move further into the year, 2023, and even faster and faster as we move into 24, all the way into uh, 2031. So, uh, so yeah, so they can basically, that's a free resource that they can go in there. The podcast also episodes are all a free resource with a lot of great guests. So uh, they can feel free to browse and use as they see fit. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your thought leadership today. It's such it's such a pleasure to be connected with you and to be in conversation and discussion with you. I've seriously I learned so much and I took so many notes and I'm can't and I cannot wait for your book to come out and I'm going to dig into it. So thank you so much, Joe. I hope you have a really great rest of your day. Thank you so much, Laura. I appreciate being here and I loved your question. So thanks again for having me. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care.